Good morning. My name is Ryan Labrie. This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screens above. I'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 from the English Standard Version. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Happy Easter to you all. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to share a little word with us this morning. I'd like us to take a few minutes to think about the question, is God good? Not on paper, not uh, just in your head, but in your heart. What do you believe about God? Is he a good God? Or maybe not? I want to show you the relevance of this question. I grew up in the church, and uh, at some point, I reached a point of cynicism about how churched people, in my perspective, understood and talked about God in their lives. There was a, 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 not just a, a freedom, but almost a cavalier attitude in the way they inserted God uh, into their narrative about their life and why things happened and what things should happen and will happen for them. And in particular, they talked about the goodness of God. They were constantly thanking God uh, for things that they felt were good things in their life. Uh, Even if from my more cynical perspective, it was at the expense of other people. And so I found sort of these God is good statements hard to swallow. Uh, I remember a particular character. Uh, I'm not sure what he's up to now, but he was a very popular worship leader, uh, Don Moen. Uh, Anybody remember Don Moen? No? Not that popular out here in the Northwest, (laughs) apparently. Uh, But he would say all the time, and he'd lead from the keyboard, and he'd say, God is good. And then people would say, all the time. And then he would say, all the time. God is good, and it used to drive me nuts. It was what gave Christians a bad name. It's what embarrassed me about the family to which I belonged. I think underneath the cynicism, I wanted this to be true, but I I, I felt like I was being invited to be in cahoots with the church and with God to perpetuate sort of the tribal myth. Let's all say this together, and if we say it enough, maybe we will believe it. And if we believe it, maybe we'll live it out. And if we do, then more people can join in on the fun. I don't know. I don't know if I was being cynical, but this is what I felt. I just didn't feel that. I didn't see the world that way. I related actually more to uh, Michael Scott from The Office, the show The Office, more than Christians on this idea of God's goodness. He has this great line uh, in one of the earlier seasons. He says, I love inside jokes. I would love to be a part of one someday. Because all of the jokes are always about him. He never knew what they were laughing about. And that's how I felt. 
I didn't know what Christians were celebrating. How do they see the world that way? How can they declare with, with such freedom that God is good and God's goodness was an inside joke that I was not a part of and I wasn't sure I wanted to be a part of it? And along with many others uh, in the world and in my life, uh, I asked the question, how can God be good when the world is full of suffering, brokenness, injustice, and tragedy? What do you think? How can God be good in your life when your life, I'm sure, has its ups and downs, when it's full of twists? And surprises and disappointments. There's pain, aggravation, frustration. How is God good? And not just in your life, but all around you. All around the world. How can you say with a clear conscience, with any form of sincerity, that God is good? So I think this is a very real question. Is God good? So I want to invite you to Really ask the question, is he good? And I realized, for me at the time, I really needed an answer to this question. Because if God wasn't good, then I had to be. Something, someone had to be a force of good in my life. There were just too, there was just too much negativity. There were too many things that were wrong in my life and in the world and in me. And I needed a force that would counter that. That was something beyond myself. Something that was going to push me in another direction besides the one I felt I was inevitably headed towards. Just because you age doesn't mean you're getting better. Actually, science would tell us things are getting worse all the time. That's the natural slope of things. Things tend towards chaos. So if God wasn't going to be the final arbiter of justice in my life, then I had to seek vengeance. I had to because nobody, was, nobody else was going to do it. If he wasn't going to double check, then I had to double check. This is the way philosophy and life works. I had to find somebody that was good who was going to fulfill me, who was going to complete me, who was going to make me happy because I certainly couldn't be happy on my own. I had to find good things and perfect things all around me because God is not good, as far as I can tell. Now, what I just expressed to you is what's called a worldview. Uh, everybody has a view. Uh, it's the way you actually, deeply, personally perceive your world. And whether you acknowledge that this question uh, of God's goodness is relevant to you or not. You have a thought about it. You have an answer about it because you're building your life on it. Uh, I want to define worldview uh, in two ways. One, uh, first, as a map. You know, you can't keep processing information like it's brand new and it's coming at you. You have to make certain assumptions. You have certain things you believe and you decide, you filter out and mark what's relevant to you. And that's called a map. I'm not everywhere. I'm right here on this road at this intersection. That's what's relevant to you. And a worldview gives you a map of the world. 
Uh, a second way to think about a worldview is footing. Uh, how many of you have ever been rock climbing? Good stuff, right? Can, can you uh, actually float up there without being belayed or setting your foot and your fingers around something? No. You have to put your foot on something, not nothing. And such is uh, life. You have to be able to find footing. You have to put your, bear your weight, put the, put the full weight of your life on something. And we're all doing that. Whether it's church or whether it's family, wherever you find your identity and purpose and meaning and sustenance for life, you're finding it. We are all looking to things, looking to uh, someone or something. And so we come back to the question, if God is not good, then what? Then by default, I would suggest, you have to find a source of good in your life. You personally have to be good enough. You have to be wise enough. You have to be uh, savvy and competent enough. You have to be well-networked. You have to have enough resources You have to have friends that help you feel good about yourself. And you have to live in a home. And you have to find ways to bolster your life. Because God is not good. Something else has to bear the weight. Um, There's a... a, a, I'm not 100% confident this is true. But in my research in the last few weeks, uh, I came across uh, this uh, teaching that Uh, Confucianism is actually some of the earliest sources that we have in writing of how human beings began to think about how to counter evil in this world. And uh, based on human empathy, Confucianism was the, uh, we have the earliest version of what we now have come to call the golden rule. Treat others how you would prefer to be treated yourself. And so you have to overlay your preferences and your humanity onto other things. And based on that, you derive your sense of how to fight evil. Well, can I do this to person A? Well, no, I could, but I won't because that would be evil. Because the reason we can call it evil is because I wouldn't want it done to me. So it's based on empathy. And that wasn't the first rule of Confucianism. It evolved further into what came to be called filial piety. It's do for your parents what you, you would want done for you as you age and grow older in life. And this was the basis of goodness. Center around this idea of how your parents want you to live and what would make them happy. And you see this uh, in Asian cultures and Eastern cultures. A lot of filial piety. Honoring your mother and father is the first rule of thumb. Lots of folks from uh, the, the East can tell you this is not necessarily the always life-giving truth that we should live by. Filial piety, piety can be oppressive can be incredibly unloving and unseeing of what is actually good and best and healthy. But humanity needed something to put their foot on. They needed a worldview. And so Confucianism became sort of an answer uh, to this very pressing need. So 
Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't have a religious worldview. Maybe you're not, a, 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 you're not into Confucianism. But you're into something. There are things you believe about how the world works. Uh, if you claim that you don't have a worldview or you don't need one, then what you're claiming is that your worldview is a universal solvent. What's a universal solvent? Well, it's something that can't exist because by definition of what it is, it would dissolve its own container and ultimately itself because it's universal. It dissolves everything. So, for example, uh, we have a universal solvent that says everything is relevant. You realize that is an absolute statement. That's not a relevant statement anymore. It's a universal solvent. It dissolves itself, and anything that tries to contain it melts away. Another example, uh, our culture. What is the number one cultural value these days? Sociologists will tell you it's tolerance. But it's incredibly intolerant of intolerance. Read the news. What's happening to the state of Indiana? It's getting beat up these days. Companies and individuals and groups are persecuting Indiana because they believe Indiana is being too intolerant. Who's believing that? Well, people who espouse tolerance. It's dissolving itself. Do you ever feel that? The fear of liability, the fear of being politically incorrect, the fear of being called a racist? These, it's hard because we understand it's eating itself. What about post-modernity itself? Post-modernity rose up in our society in the 70s, and the main point of post-modernity was give voice to the minority uh, by calling everything valid. Oh, a thousand people believe one thing. That's valid. One person believes something else. Oh, that's valid too. And now, how has the culture shifted? What do millennials want? Authenticity. They want something that's actually valid, something that's actually real. We're sick of everything being valid because if everything is valid, then it dissolves itself and nothing is valid. I would just like one thing to be real. And now what do the millennials say? Oh, stop talking about authenticity already. That's so inauthentic. <laughs> being, irony, uh, being, being ironic is no longer cool. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> so these universal solvents are beginning to dissolve itself. If you don't believe in maps, then that belief itself is a map of the world. It's a way you're going to navigate the world. If you say you don't need footing, it's a way to put your foot on it. I put my foot on the fact that I don't need footing. That's an absolute statement. There are worldviews that we have that can withstand the test of time, withstand the trials of life. Everything else will dissolve away. The Bible calls this test fire, that everything you believe Everything that's supposedly true is going to be tested by fire and things made of straw and hay, stubble. These things are going to burn up. And what's going to be left are the things that were meant to from the very beginning, things that deserve to bear the weight of your life. So, is God good? We might even disingenuously proclaim that God is good because... We need to believe God is good. And that point, even back then, I could appreciate that the human being has a need for God to be good. 
Uh, this image behind me is the image of the typhoon. I'm not, I'm not saying this right. Uh, Maysak or Maysik, M-A-Y-S-A-K. It's a uh, recent typhoon from a, a week or so ago, and it was captured by astronauts from the International Space Station. Uh, so that's a pretty recent picture of our world today. And so I want to tell you what my current worldview is. I want to invite you to hear about it. Uh, I believe that life is a storm. I believe that life is a typhoon. And everything and everyone is tossed around by their own personal and their surrounding problems, creating problems, and we have false solutions that are abounding. We live in a storm. That's what I believe. I believe that there is a massive energy something that the scriptures call death, that we're hurling towards, that life really is headed towards death. Relationships aren't getting better. They're deteriorating. Everything that you physically possess, it's all deteriorating. Organizations, institutions, culture, everything is all heading towards death. Death energy is pulling us in. And just like the size of this massive typhoon, there's no way I can withstand the power of this storm in my life and in the world. I'm all caught up in it. And every good intended action I take towards countering this storm somehow gets added to the momentum of the storm and it creates more problems. I believe also that God is the only source of a counter energy, life energy, reversing the storm. And I believe not just general energy, but God is in the midst of the storm, reaching out to me personally. He knows my name. He cares about me. He sees me. He understands me profoundly. And he's reaching out. Peter, Peter, I'm here. That's what I believe. Two points today. One, our solutions are problematic And two, God's salvation is personal. I know, that was just the intro. You guys are just... (laughs) Oh, come on. Some of you I haven't seen since Christmas. It's got to feed you a whole year. Okay, our solutions are problematic. God's salvation is personal. Okay, first, our solutions are problematic. We'll start with verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Okay, we'll start with malice. Malice, by definition, is ill will. Uh, This word in the Greek, it means evil. It means that you have a desire to injure or to harm. That means that at your core, what you start the world with is depraved. It's not that you are good and then somehow life messes you up. As soon as you're born, you begin to contribute to the storm of evil and problems in the world. There's no one good, no, not one. That's what the scriptures teach. And we are born not good, and we love darkness. 
There is a perverse attraction to darkness that we have. Malice. Second word, a little bit lighter, believe it or not, than malice, is the word deceit. It means that there's a craftiness to our nature. Our nature is beguiling. We don't love truth. We somehow have to put a little twist on everything. We're looking for an edge, an advantage. And so we can't quite just be, but we have to present. There's something that's broken in the way we perceive ourselves and understand what the world's response to our true self will be. So we have to deceive. The heart says, I mean, the Bible says about the human heart that above all else, the human heart is deceitful. You know, I I was wondering about this this week, and I began to notice this everywhere. And my personal conclusion is like 95% of human energy is spent uh, because we can't trust people. We're trying to ascertain what they're actually thinking or feeling or saying or did. How, How are you? Oh, I'm fine. And then five minutes later, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder what's really going on. Third, hypocrisy. Uh, Literally just means to conceal one's thoughts or feelings or character. It means to walk around with a pretense. We fear vulnerability. We are incapable of truly trusting. We're disconnected from who we really are. We don't even know. And so we grab at the things around us and we put them on as if they were our faces. We're hypocrites. Another way to translate this would be actors. We're all acting. And I I find this really uh, uh, true for churches especially. I find that as a community, we're incredibly dogmatic. But personally, for ourselves and for our close loved ones, we make all sorts of exceptions. Because we're hypocrites. And we know this, and so we, our, our personal lives are filled with exceptions for ourselves. For our children, we have all sorts of exceptions. Things don't phase us. Oh, that's life. We have to cover it. We love. But then as a church, we love to beat up on each other. We love to beat up on society or culture. We love to do that. Why? Because I think we're all concealing the fact that we're hypocrites. So we're like double-layer hypocrites. We're hypocrites to begin with, and then we cover up the fact that we're hypocrites by pretending to be more integrous than we actually are. Okay, and then we have envy. Uh, Envy is a discontentment or resentment aroused by the other's possession, quality, or luck, or fortune in life. What that means is we're in a perpetual state of want. Regardless of what we actually need, we never feel sufficient. We always feel inferior and less than, and we have an unbearable need to possess and to exploit and to have power and control. If you see a beautiful flower, you can't just thank God for it. You have to pick it. What do you think is behind the selfie craze these days? It's envy. It's we are trying to own the moment, possess something. Why can't something just be beautiful? Why do we have to, oh, let me get my phone out. Why? You're never going to look at it again is what the statistics tell us. It's an instinct born, I believe, out of envy, a constant perpetual want. And then we have slander. Uh, It means that, uh, it means backbiting, 
uh, literally the Greek word is broken up into two, uh, two words put together. It means evil speaking. We are always, as we talked about before, forming narratives about ourselves and others towards personal advantage. We're constantly judging people, born out of our own insecurity. We take pleasure in the other's demise. We take comfort in it because the narratives confirm lies about ourselves that we love to believe. And so here we have it, folks. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. How are we doing? What would the world be? What would be the chain reaction of change in the world if these traits disappeared for just 24 hours? Would you like to live in that world? You wouldn't belong at all. <laughs> the world is this way. We are this way. The world plus us equals a storm, a typhoon of problems. And then, and then, we add our sin to it. That's just our nature. That's how we're born. And then we have our sin. And sin, as I often define it, is illegitimate means of meeting legitimate needs. Malice is an illegitimate way of meeting legitimate needs. Deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. These are all illegitimate ways of meeting legitimate needs. Here's the kicker, really. The kicker is things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These aren't our problems. These are our solutions. This is what happens when we take our best shot at solving our problems. We have problems, and then we layer on top of that our best solution. We say, you know, I can't bear the weight of life on my own shoulders. Let me put it on something. And we put it on malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy, and slander. I can't do it because I'm filled with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Let me find somebody else to do it and call you beloved. And they're filled with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Only thing worse than our problems are our solutions. And so we have the storm. I had a very recent example of this. Uh, Susie and I wanted to go to uh, yoga yesterday. Uh, and so we said to the kids, be good. Don't do anything. Except I really wanted Bear to be walked. Bear's our dog. I really wanted him to be walked, so I said, and I'm trying to find creative ways to begin to give them a little bit of money, teaching them about spending and having them pay for some of their own things. And so I said, you know, if all of you go and walk bare together, you have to stay together as a pack, just around the block, then I'll pay each of you $5. That was the deal. Just a random thing. I know, I know. <laughs> So, but the rule was the oldest has to be there. You can't just go off, like not one of you. If the oldest one wants to walk by themselves, they can't. But if any of the younger ones do, they have to go together. That was, the, that was the deal. And they've done this many times. And so they have experience doing this. So Susie and I set them to this task. And we are off in yoga land. And I come home. And there's just disaster in the house. They're all there. But one of them is bawling and just, <laughs> just panicked crying. 
can't take in enough oxygen kind of crying. Right? There's a storm raging in the Sung family, and, and everybody else just has this deer in headlights look as we walk in because they realize they're in trouble. And as one comedian said, trouble is a big deal when you're a kid. Like when you're an adult, you don't care. But for a kid, trouble is the end of life. <laughs> right? And so they're in trouble, and they know this. And what had happened is they all three got separated. At one point, all of the Sung girls were on the streets of Mercer Island by themselves. And then the youngest one was home looking for the others and panicked and believed the world to have ended. Hence the, you know, crying. And guess what my wonderful solution to this problem was? Condemnation, of course. Of course. Because it could have gone so much worse. And I wanted to punish them for that. Rather than the fact that everything's fine. That's my best solution. What's the problem? My problem is I don't know how to solve problems. My reactivity is the problem. My nature is the problem. My fear is the problem. My world view is the problem. I live in a world that's not very safe. I live in a world where God is not good. Where people aren't good. And I have this emotional reaction. No matter how much of a Christian or a pastor or a good guy I want to be, life cuts me and I bleed what I bleed. My blood is what it is. Fight or flight mechanism, self-sabotage, my love of darkness, my divided interests, the way I lord it over people that I have to lead, the effects that power has on me, the destructive subjectivity in my nature. It's all mass energy pulling me and my life and everyone around me towards death. A storm raging in my life. And every effort I make to solve these problems are also problematic, adding to the storm. And I realize I need a solution that is beyond me, outside of the storm, outside of the system. God's salvation is personal. The problem, first of all, with the storm, it's not just that it's this death energy out there, but it's death energy that you are born with. There's a fallenness to who you are. The image of God in which human beings were originally created is broken. And we need an energy that's from without, but that will be birthed from within. Where does that come from? What do we do? And this is where the resurrection comes in. God causes, the scriptures say, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And here's what I want to tell you. You are not 100% bad. You have lots of gifts. You're funny. You You have great personality traits. And some of you are good looking. Not many of you, but some of you. You know, and we have moments of love. There are moments when uh, human beings rise to great challenges and they make sacrifices. And we are touched by genuine humanity. Sometimes love is true and it's real and it's visible. 
There is such a thing as good in this world. But what the scriptures tell us is that every single good thing you've ever thought or done or witnessed is from God. It's not from the world. And certainly not from us. Every good personality trait you have, it's a little hint that you are made in the image of God. But every bad thing that you ever exhibit reminds you that you are fallen, that your solutions are problematic. There is good, there's beauty, but that's God's, what what the theologians call common grace. It's God shining his light on us, on the evil and the good, all mixed up together. But don't let it fool you into thinking you are the source of some good or some wisdom or something that's of value. It's not from you. And part of your problem is you are not acknowledging that the source is God. And you're not thanking God for it. You're not worshiping God for it. You believe it's from you. Did you make a good decision today? That's not from you. Have you ever felt love for someone, true love? That's not from you. Have you ever been on the receiving end of kindness? That's from God. And the ultimate sign, the ultimate sign that God's energy is defeating the energy of the storm, the death energy, is the resurrection. God literally defeated death on the cross so that something we call light, the scriptures call light, can be birthed in you. The spirit of Jesus Christ in you, who lives in you, so that you in your fallenness might die and be resurrected as one who is actually able to live and not die. All of that is from God. And the resurrection is the ultimate proof that God is alive and well in this world. Life energy triumphing over death energy. But here's the thing. It's not just an energy. It's a person who personally sees your plight and wants to come into your life. Verse 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's from within. Okay, there's a process. You're drinking, you're eating, you're digesting. It's being integrated into your uh, spiritual molecular cells and you begin to grow up into salvation, if indeed what? How does that happen? If you personally have tasted that the Lord is good. God does not expect us to just believe. But there's an invitation for you to personally experience the life of God in your life. The energy of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the touch of God, the presence of God in your personal life. Why would a God have anything to do with you. That's how he rolls. He created you. He made you. He knows you. And he's the only one that can save you. He is the only thing that you need. Everything else that you have received good from, it's him. It's him loving you. It's him sending you a message saying, I'm here. I want to give you grace. I want to do good in your life. I don't want all of the things in your life to go this way. I want it to go that way. I want there to be a reversal of the storm. Uh, one of the places I used to go up to all the time is a bed and breakfast in Vermont. 
uh, to Gwen's, one of my mentors. And I met a beautiful black lab there uh, one winter. And I met the owners. We're all having dinner together. And I just fell in love with this dog. I loved the nature of this dog. And the owners began to tell me that this dog was about to die last week. And I thought, oh, tell me the story. What had happened is, I guess uh, some bigger dogs, especially like labs, have this common problem where their stomach starts twisting. And then it can't untwist, and they die. And this dog sensed that it was about to die, so it wandered off into the forest by itself, dug a grave for itself, and lay down to die. And because the family loved this dog and knew this dog and missed this dog, they searched for this dog, and they found this dog, and they rescued this dog. And they brought this dog to the hospital. The dog had surgery. They... And they stapled the stomach, untwisted the stomach and stapled the stomach so it could never twist again. And I would not have guessed. Good as new, alive and well. I realize with all of the efforts I can make, all of my best solutions, I'm just digging a grave for myself. And I need God to come find me. I need God to love me and miss me and know me and rescue me. That's what I need. I need this. I think about all the various roles I play in my life. As a dad, do I need it? Do I need serendipity and grace and outside power in my life? Yeah, I do. I really do. As a husband, I do. I really do. What about my role here at the church? Do I need? I know you don't think I need, but I do. I'm not perfect, as most of you assume. It's funny because it's absolutely not true. You know I need God. And what you want to experience from me is God through me. And so I'm telling you, you need it. You need to know that every good in your life is from God. And you need to thank this God. You need to acknowledge this God. You need to worship this God and taste of his goodness in your life. And invite him to do more. You need to reorient. You need a new world view. You need a humility in your worldview. Here's what I think your worldview should be. The storm is powerful and pervasive. And the world and self, in general, are caught up in the storm. And every good that we've ever experienced is from God, not from us. And the resurrection proves the power of God, the efficacy of God in your life. And it's personal. He's reaching out to you personally. He wants to engage you in the process of saving you. And you can be born again, resurrected to new life. Truths and wisdom and principles, these are all impersonal. They cannot save you. They don't care about you. They don't see you. It's dependent on your application, your discipline. But God, he comes as you're digging your grave. And he's able to rescue you. So I invite you to believe in God, that God is good. Would you pray with me? God, I invite you to show each person in this room in a, 
in the most personal way possible, that you know them by name, you care, you've been intervening their whole life, and you want to be their God. And you have proven your love and your power to save through the resurrection. I lift all of us up to you and to your goodness in Jesus' name.